1: today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick.
0: Real love is calling, truth opens up your eyes. Mercy is for you
2: with every sunrise. But we can't only be known as a church of truth. We must also be known as a church of grace and truth. Where troubled, disgraced people can come The love of the Lord Jesus shines light on their broken condition. They realize it and then they come to a place of confession and repentance before God and He loves on them, forgives them, and shows them His grace. May we always be that church.
1: This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Nehemiah. Aren't you glad that God loves you enough to forgive even your worst sins? The love of Christ strikes the perfect balance between tough truth and gentle grace. As the church and body of Christ, we should strive to reflect that same love toward others. In today's teaching, Pastor Gary shares how we shouldn't ignore sin, but we also shouldn't be so quick to cast the first stone either. Like Nehemiah, we should have a tender heart for the troubled and disgraced among us. Show them the same grace you've received. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in Nehemiah chapter one for part two of today's message titled, Helping the Troubled and Disgrace.
2: Just a quick review. When Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, besieged Jerusalem in 586 BC, he destroyed the city, he destroyed the temple, he left it just a pile of rubble, took the Jews off thousands of them into captivity into Babylonia. The Babylonians were then succeeded by the Persians when a Persian king, Darius, came on the throne, he said to the Jews, you guys have been done wrong, okay, you were taken captive and brought over here under Nebuchadnezzar, and now that we've replaced the Babylonians, Darius says to the Jews, any of you whose heart moves may go back to your homeland in Israel. There are two waves before Nehemiah of Jews who go back to Israel. The first wave is led by a guy whose name was Zerubbabel. He leads the census, tells us in the Bible, about 50,000 Jews go back to Jerusalem. The second wave is by Ezra. Ezra leads another group of about 1,800 men. When you do the math of women and children, probably three, four, five thousand 5,000 people go back in the second wave. The second wave led by Ezra occurs about 15 years before Nehemiah. The first wave was about 100 years before Nehemiah. So the first wave of people, they've been back in Israel for about 100 years. And when Darius gave this order that as many as want to go back to Israel are able to go back, Nehemiah and his family were among those who stayed in Persia. Nehemiah has never been to Israel, never seen Israel, only understands the condition of the people by way of the word he gets from his brother and the guys who visited him. So when the Jews returned to Israel, to Jerusalem specifically, they returned to nothing but a pile of rocks that Nebuchadnezzar had left in the wake of his victory over Jerusalem. So The first wave of people especially, they have to rebuild their lives from nothing, just rubble. They have to go back and reestablish everything. The Bible says in Ezra, if you remember, first thing that they rebuild is the altar of the Lord. Even before the temple, they rebuild the altar. They build the altar because they want to get serious and prioritize their worship of God and the sacrificial system to make atonement for their sins, which was the only way prior to the cross that sins could be atoned for. So they build the altar. Secondly, they build the temple. The temple is now finished, okay? By the time we get here to Nehemiah, the temple is completed. But apparently, however, the city of Jerusalem itself is still in a state of disrepair. Rocks and just rubble. Apparently, the people built the altar, built the temple, but then they never really rebuilt the city, and they never rebuilt the walls. They lived on the outskirts of town. They built homes on the outskirts of the city. And then they just seemed to be content to step over piles of rock and rubble to get to the temple. It didn't seem to concern them. And so what happens is when the word gets to Nehemiah about the condition of the city, Nehemiah realizes that the broken condition of the city is representative of the broken condition of their lives. Because in the prayer in chapter 1, he's confessing sin. He realizes the reason why the people have not rightly, properly rebuilt the city is because their lives are broken. And when your lives are broken, you don't repair other things that are broken around you. Nehemiah spends time confessing his sin and the sin of his fathers. Not that he's responsible for the sin of his fathers, neither are we. Broadly speaking, I confess my sins, the sin of my nation. We just want to be right with you. You have promised through Moses that if we were unfaithful, we would be scattered. But if we return to you, you would gather the exiles from the farthest parts. And Nehemiah is basically saying, God, you've done that. You've gathered the exiles again. You've returned them to the land. But it breaks my heart that the wall is in a state of disrepair. And so this is why he's mourning and he's grieving here. He says, this isn't right. This isn't right. We're going to build a wall. We're going to build the wall around Jerusalem again. Now he is motivated here and he's brokenhearted for two reasons. One, patriotism for the land that he loves. And two, compassion for the people that he loves. But what I find remarkable about his emotion here and his passion and compassion is that he's broken hearted over a people that he doesn't even really know, over a city that he's never visited, over a land that he's never seen. This is remarkable. This is something God has put in his heart. He doesn't know these people. These are exiles that have returned. He's never seen Jerusalem or visited there. He'd never been to the land of Israel. And yet he has this burning desire, this compassion to reach out and help these people. God has put it there. By the way, it is the reason why some people get called on the mission field. And it isn't because, oh, it was a nice vacation spot, and now let's just turn our vacation spot into permanent ministry. It's often because they have a passion and compassion for people that they've never met, for a city they've never visited, for a land they've never seen. Because when God puts it in your heart, you begin to have this desire to help and to reach out and to serve and to love people, and you don't even really know them. Nehemiah didn't even really know these people. Yes, he was a part of the Jewish race. Yes, he had patriotism because of the land. Yes, he had compassion because these were his people. But it would have been very easy for him to live a content life as the cupbearer to the king in the citadel of Susa and not give any concern to what was happening back in Jerusalem. But this is a God thing in his heart. And note with me again the words of verse 3. The men who say what the condition of the Jews are to Nehemiah use these words. Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. Underline those words. Great trouble and disgrace. And it was more than the condition of the walls. It was a condition of the people. Nehemiah had a heart for people who were in great trouble and disgrace. And hear me on this, so should we. As a church, we should always have a heart for people who were greatly troubled and disgraced. And as we continue our points from the book of Ezra into Nehemiah, and when we were in Ezra, we had nine points, so I'm going to give you the tenth point we were just continuing this whole idea of what do we need to learn going forward from their building projects and their relocation plans here. Here's number 10 on the list. We must always have a heart for people who are troubled and disgraced, having compassion for them and helping them because of their broken condition. That's what our church needs to continue to be about. We must always be a church of compassion that helps people, that not just feels for them, but actually does something to help people, to bring them to Christ, that they would understand forgiveness and grace and love in their trouble and disgrace. That troubled, disgraced people will come into our church and they will hear the good news of how God loves them and Christ died for them and that their lives can be forgiven and changed from the inside out. And we must still be people of great compassion and never lose sight as being people of great compassion for those who are troubled and disgraced that we would have compassion over their broken condition. Now, I will be honest with you. A lot of people don't see their broken condition. Not at first. I get the sense from this story. They don't recognize just how broken they are. It takes an outside objective perspective like Nehemiah to shine light onto their broken condition. These people aren't seeing it. You know, they're content to step over piles of rock and rubble to get to the temple from their homes on the outskirts of town. They're not weeping. They're used to it now. It's been about 100 years since the first wave has returned to Jerusalem. They are used to their broken condition, and they don't even see it. You know how that works in our own lives? We can get used to something because we just kind of get desensitized to everything else, and so we're just used to our broken condition, and we accept that it's normal. Terry and I were at our friend's house. This was many years ago. We were there for dinner one night. They had us over for dinner. And then after dinner was over, they said, hey, why don't we just go downstairs and just, you know, veg, hang out a little bit, watch some TV. So we're downstairs at their house watching some TV. And five minutes into whatever we were watching, I don't remember, I heard this loud snap, almost like a little firecracker inside their television. I'm like, this doesn't sound good. That TV's about to explode. And I kind of let it go. It was just one quick, you know, and then about five minutes later, I heard it again. And it caused me to jump. And I leaned over to Terry. I said, do you hear their TV just snapping every five minutes? Just, she goes, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of disturbing. I hear it. It sounds like the thing's going to explode. I said, yeah, I know. What's up with that? And so we just kept watching. You know, we're whispering. Like, did you hear that? Yeah, I heard that. And then after about five or six of these snaps, like a spark, I turned to my friends. They're just looking straight ahead at the TV. They're unfazed. They're looking straight ahead. I said, hey, sorry, do you guys hear what your TV's doing? They're like, what are you talking about? I said, about every five minutes, it snaps, like sparks. Just listen. Let's just pause here and listen. And so, sure enough, a few minutes later, you know, there's a spark. My friend says, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We don't even hear it anymore. We don't even hear it anymore. It's been snapping like that for 15 years. We've just been watching the TV. We don't even notice it anymore. Well, we heard it because we were it was new to us. But once you become desensitized, then it becomes normal. There are a lot of people in our world that their broken lives have become normal to them. They don't really see their broken condition until someone comes along like a Nehemiah and sheds light on their broken condition. I remember being as a teenager, a church-going kid, thought I was good to go, tried to be a good person, thought I was good to go on my way to heaven until God brought a Nehemiah into my life. About, I don't know, five or six months ago, by the way, I hadn't seen him in 30 years. And he was here about five or six months ago because we have some mutual friends and he was up from Florida and he was here at church on a Wednesday night. But he was the Nehemiah in my life. And so I can remember it being at this youth camp and he was the speaker and I was like 15 years of age and we're walking along together and he said, So, are you a Christian? I said, Yeah, I'm a Christian. He says, Well, how do you know? I said, Because I go to church. I mean, that was my genuine answer. He says, so are you going to heaven? I said, of course I'm going to heaven. He says, how do you know? I said, because I go to church. I mean, that was my pat answer for everything. You want fries with that burger? Yeah, sure. How do you know for sure? Because I go to church. (laughs) I mean, it was just like everything was because I go to church. It wasn't until he showed me in Scripture, well, hey, listen, it sounds like you believe you have an understanding it's a head knowledge have you ever asked Christ into your heart have you ever confessed with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead Romans 10 9 and 10 I get that you believe but have you ever really done anything have you really ever put your faith and trust in Christ asked him to come into your life you see we can sit in church all our lives that doesn't make us a Christian any more than going to Dunkin Donuts makes you a cop do you know what I'm saying to you (laughs) and I say that with all compassion my police friends know that. But I'm just saying that that doesn't make you. You have to have relationship with Christ. You have to come into relationship and trust him as your Lord and Savior who died on a cross. It can't just be up here. It has to be here in your heart. Okay? So there was a Nehemiah in my life. Most people who are in a broken condition don't really see it until somebody shines that light and helps you to understand what the truth is. Now, on the one hand, I was kind of in the category where I thought it was a pretty good person. And my idea was good people go to heaven as long as you strive to be a good person. It was a wrong concept, but that was my sense. On the other hand, there's another camp of people, and they have no illusions. They're painfully aware that they're greatly troubled and disgraced because the sinful choices that they've made... Now, they may not couch it in those terms, sinful choices, but they are painfully aware of the decisions they've made in their life that have led now to a very troubled and disgraced life. One of the stories that comes quickly to mind when I think about someone who was greatly troubled and disgraced is the story of the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. And I really want to kind of hone in on the few minutes we have left, hone in on this point here. And so I want to use John 8 to illustrate what I'm talking about. So if you want to leave Nehemiah now and go to, in your New Testament, to John chapter 8, I just want to share this story from John chapter 8 that is probably familiar to many of you, But I want you to see this with me as we understand what does it mean to have compassion for people and to help them in their broken condition, to recognize those who are greatly troubled and disgraced and to do something about it. And to illustrate it, let's see what Jesus did here with this woman in John chapter 8. And the story begins in verse 1 down through verse 11. So that's what I'm going to read. And it says this, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Verse 2, At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. And said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. All right, your attention on this story here. This is a setup. This is completely designed by the religious leaders who do not accept Jesus and his ministry with the intent of somehow maligning him, discrediting him, trapping him. It tells us in verse 6 that they were doing this trying to trap Jesus. So it's clear that they have ulterior motives here. And what is so sad about this story is that even though the religious leaders were often trying to do things to malign and discredit Jesus, they have stooped to an all-time low this time. Because on this occasion, they're actually going to use a woman and humiliate her in the process in their effort to try to discredit Jesus. It tells us here that they get this woman in the act of adultery, and they haul her in front of Jesus and the whole group that is around Jesus. Now, as a background to this story, it is one of the feast times. Jesus is in Jerusalem, and it was typical for rabbis to teach in the courtyard area of the temple. So imagine now Jesus is teaching, and there are dozens of people, maybe even hundreds of people gathered around him, listening to him as he's teaching. And all of a sudden, these religious leaders haul in this woman who was caught in the act of adultery. She's probably just barely clothed, maybe grabbed the sheet to wrap herself with as they haul her forcibly in front of the whole group of people. Can you imagine the humiliation? Can you imagine her embarrassment? How disgraced she must have felt. Standing in front of this whole group, you know, it used to be, that would be bad enough. It used to be that if somebody sinned in a community, it was kind of restricted to that community. Now with social media and the internet, your sin is broadcast around the whole world in an instant. Imagine how you would feel if your sin becomes exposed for all the world to hear about. The embarrassment, the humiliation, the disgrace. And here she is standing here in front of Jesus, and everybody here, and they, the religious leaders, ask Jesus, they're in verse 5, they say, well, the law of Moses says that we should stone such women caught in adultery. What do you say? By the way, who's absent from this story? Ladies? The man. It is believed that the man is in collusion with the religious leaders in their attempt to discredit Jesus. Because the Bible makes it clear. You know, they're quoting the law of Moses here. The law of Moses commands to stone such women. Well, actually, guys, the law of Moses in Leviticus 20 and Deuteronomy 22 says that you were to haul both the man and the woman before the elders and stone them both. Adultery was a capital offense in the Old Testament. Where's the man? It's evidence that he's in collusion with the religious leaders in this little charade. They pose this question to Jesus. The Bible says that Jesus stoops down and writes with his finger in the dirt. Now... Some people say, well, maybe he was writing the Ten Commandments. And, you know, commandment number seven is what the woman was guilty of. But maybe as the guys saw the other commandments, they would feel convicted about their own sin issues. Who knows what he was writing? I sometimes wonder if he was just, you know, writing in the dirt while he could pray because he's wanting the wisdom from heaven here at this moment. And when he stands up, he has the wisdom of heaven. I mean, it's brilliant what he says. He stands up and he says, all right this is how I'll answer your question. Whoever's without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone at her. And verse nine says, they began going away one at a time. King James version adds being convicted by their own conscience. And it says there in verse nine, the older ones left first. You know why that is, right? Because the older you've lived, the more you've been around the block. You're keenly aware of the more sins you've committed than the younger crowd. So the older ones are peeling off first until eventually Jesus is left just standing there alone with this woman. And he says to her in verse 10, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, sir. And he says to her, then neither do I condemn you. Now, if the story stopped right there, Jesus could be accused of being soft on sin. But he adds, go and leave your life of sin. King James Version says, go and sin no more. So Jesus clearly addresses the sin issue with her. This is sin. The woman made some choices here. Even though we can argue it's entrapment, they humiliated her, they disgraced her, and they did all those things. She still exercised choice here. She still sinned, and Jesus addressed it. But he starts by saying, neither do I condemn you, because he's aware of her humiliation. Her broken condition has been revealed to everybody, and she's painfully aware of it as well. He doesn't need to heap condemnation on it. He already knows she feels condemned enough. So what does he do? All the people who wrongly accused her disgraced her. Jesus graced her. That's what he did. He graced her. The people had disgraced her. Jesus graced her. He understood the punishment that you've received is sufficient. The humiliation you have endured is sufficient. The shame and embarrassment that you have received is sufficient. You know your broken condition. I know your broken condition. And now, unfortunately, everybody else knows your broken condition. But okay, go and sin no more. I don't condemn you either. And he graces her. I want our church always to be a place... Where like Nehemiah, we weep over the troubled, disgraced lives of people. And like Jesus, we minister grace to those people. I understand that we must always also be a church of truth. And to be quite honest, sometimes no matter how well you present truth and how delicately you present truth. Somebody's going to be offended just because the nature of truth sometimes stings. And they will accuse you of being unloving, even if you're not. But we can't only be known as a church of truth. We must also be known as a church of grace and truth. Where troubled, disgraced people can come, the love of the Lord Jesus shines light on their broken condition, they realize it, and then they come to a place of confession and repentance before God, and He loves on them, forgives them, and shows them His grace. May we always be that church where broken people can find healing and grace in the name of Jesus Christ.
1: NEHEMIAH FACED A DAUNTING TASK OF LEADING ONE OF THE WAVES OF RETURNING EXILES AND REBUILDING THE WALLS OF JERUSALEM. THE WORK WAS HARD AND SLOW AND FILLED WITH SETBACKS AND STRUGGLES, INCLUDING ENEMIES WHO CAME UP AGAINST THEM. THE GREAT THING ABOUT NEHEMIAH WAS THAT HE WASN'T A PRIEST AND HE WASN'T A LEVITE. IN FACT, HE WASN'T IN PROFESSIONAL MINISTRY IN ANY WAY. YOU MAY NOT BE A PASTOR, BUT GOD CAN USE YOUR EXPERIENCE AND WILLINGNESS ALL THE SAME. Who knows what amazing things he may have in store for you if you'll open yourself to his leading and step out in faith. You have a great journey awaiting you. Just ask God to open your eyes to His plan. We'd love to pray for you along this journey, too. Are you facing a difficult situation? Call us and share your prayer requests at 703-771-1500. To hear more great messages from Pastor Gary Hamrick, look us up online at cornerstoneconnection.cc or subscribe to our podcast. You can also take Cornerstone Connection with you on our mobile app to listen to whenever and wherever you are. That's it for today. We pray you continue to see God in your everyday experiences and that you feel His presence in your life today. Be sure to tune in again for another exciting edition of Cornerstone Connection.
2: They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know But still you know You're not alone